0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Media Meets, the monthly music podcast where we talk to a wide range of people from the music scene. This month I'm speaking to John Astley who's had a phenomenal career as a mastering engineer working with the biggest artists in the world including The Who, Abba, George Harrison and many many more. John cut his teeth in the early days as an engineer for the likes of David Bowie and the Eagles, and in the 90s went on to have a solo career of his own. John's still mastering to this day, and now offers a reduced rate for anyone who's unsigned to have their tracks mastered through his incredible setup. I caught up with John earlier this year to talk about his career, and my first question was about his musical beginnings.
1: Um, well, my father was quite a famous sixties composer, uh, Ted Ashley, Edwin Astley, and he wrote the music for the Saint and a lot of the t- and Robin Hood and stuff. A lot of the TV stuff that you saw on um, independent television in uh, in the sixties. So he used to take me to one or two recordings, um, mostly on sound stages. So and I think the very first one I went to was actually, I remember him asking for to run a wax disc because they recorded to optical film and you couldn't play back optical film. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to listen to something back, you had to run a disc at the same time or, a, a you know, a piece of acetate or something and, uh, and then you could play it back in the control room. So, yeah, um, I went to the, uh, some vivid memories of, of, like, the Danger Man recordings with the harpsichord and... Um, Randall and Hopkirk and it was uh, interesting and that yeah and I got interested in being in the control rooms and uh, and seeing what they were doing so it started early
0: mm. and do you feel like there was a process of osmosis in some way that you picked up from being there um, I don't know because I really
1: was my heart was in film and I went off to to and I did three years of making films at um, Oxford Poly well in my last year I made films and um and I really wanted to get into the film industry and to eventually direct, but the film industry was dead on its. It was on its knees. This is about early seventies, seventy one or seventy two. Um, it's before Star Wars had come along. All the technical stuff had um, had be, hadn't been invented, so really, like Pinewood and um, Elstree places were on their knees and closing left, right, and centre. Ealing closed, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, I was offered a job on cameras in. Um, at ATV in Birmingham because they were still running 16mm news uh, footage. Wow. And um, I could see that, it, as soon as everybody else was running video, I thought, oh, this isn't going to be a very long life. And I didn't really want to live in Birmingham. My heart, my heart was in, down here. Mm-hmm. I wanted
0: to live in London. And what was it that drew you to film in those early days? Um, Why did you want to be involved in that?
1: I don't know. I just love the medium and um, it's very exciting. And I made some really nice little films, one of which is in the British Film Institute um, archives. I made a film for the Family Planning Association. And they came to me and asked me to do it while I was in my last year. And, um, but the, the, big dif- the big difference was at the end of my three years when I came out of college that most people had said my soundtrack sounded better than my films looked. <laughs> So maybe the writing was on the wall at that point. <laughs>
0: yeah, exactly. If people are saying that to you, yeah, yeah. definitely. Um, I have a similar, I have a similar aspiration. I love film too. Uh, yeah. It's, it's definitely in this form of escapism from music for me, this film. And um, yeah. yeah, I'd love to direct a film with it. And I can't really explain why either. Um, you did work on Quadrophenia though. Is that correct? I think you have a credit working on the film Quadrophenia um only on the soundtrack Oh, was that on the soundtrack i think so um i did that could
1: be, i remember visiting Pete and going out and recording outboard motors and stuff uh, we, yeah we had um he had a um little stereo uh Stella box i think it was or maybe it was the a real surreal machine and we we went out and recorded bit sound bits of background noise and stuff. And the pebbles on the beach at the beginning of Quadrophenia that, that was um, recorded by him wow. so and we're just walking up and down the beach and doing stuff you know.
0: that must have felt really cool in those in those days to be able to take a machine to record things like yeah an engine or a motor and it not a conventional instrument in a studio
1: yeah without power as well you know with a little battery pack which is great quite yeah. exciting so yeah um pete did all the Sound effects for it, and the train, go, you know, coming past in five fifteen—that sort of stuff. I think that was recorded in Gori, um, where the whole of was put together. When they mixed it, they had eight-track cartridges with the sound effects on them, like they do, like they had at the BBC. <coughs> so that as they mix, they throw the cartridge in for the sound effects at the right at the right moment. Really, yeah. and then it triggers, and, and it got added to the mix as it went along. Yeah. That's cool, which was really exciting because no, I don't think anybody had done that yeah and pete mixed it in four track as a quadraphonic experiment and he had to, uh, and dolby came um, the guy from dolby came down and they did some encoding and stuff to try and early it was early surround sound experiments really to try and carry four tracks over a, over a two track mm-hmm. with a, some sort of matrix encoding going on so yeah. yeah interesting stuff
0: and when you say Pete, that's Pete Townsend? Yeah. yeah. Okay, cool.
1: I've known him all my life. Well, I've known him since 65, since the first single, anyway, can't explain, mm-hmm. which he gave to me.
0: Did he? <laughs> that's brilliant. He was, he was married to your sister? He was married to my sister time. for a while, Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's brilliant. It's brilliant that you had, I mean, you must have so many recollections. of... Oh, yeah, and
1: he took me to gigs. He was very, very sweet. Whether he was just trying to keep my mum and dad happy, I don't know.
0: <laughs> it always helps <laughs> doing that sort of thing. But yeah,
1: he'd drive me to gigs. So amazing. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's in his old house where we were?
1: we set in his old house. Oh, and this no. room, um, uh, Thunderclap Newman something in the air, a lot of the work for that was done in, in this room. Really? Yeah. Wow. With Andy Newman and Speedy Keen. Jimmy McCulloch. Do you remember Jimmy McCulloch? He joined Wings. He was the guitarist in Wings.
0: Oh, all right. Okay. All right. I just, I just know Ian McCulloch in the music world, which yeah. is uh, Echo and the Man.
1: Yeah. Different, different family. Yeah. <laughs> Probably related.
0: <laughs> That's brilliant. So um, you started out as a tape operator yeah. in, in the early 70s.
1: I had a job at Radio Luxembourg for a, a few days, and they asked me, um, a friend asked me to drop by and see him at the Red Lion in Barnes on my way home. So I did that. He introduced me to Keith Grant. Keith Grant was the manager of Olympic Studios. And I knew about Olympic because talking to Pete, Pete had been working there. They'd done Who's, who's, a lot of who's Next there with Glyn with John. Mm-hmm. And um, so I really got on with Keith and um, I, I said, you know, I'd, I'd give my right arm to work with you. And, and I hear you've got some new 24-trap machines arriving, you know. And he said, yeah. He said, um, when could you start? And I said, Monday. And he went, right. So I gave them very short notice at Radio Luxembourg, and I started work <laughs> at Olympic, and um, which is OK in those days. Nobody seems to have an eyelid. Um, but you, you make tea, basically, and look after clients. Very early on, I got into setting up microphones for everybody, making sure they all worked before... A jingle session. Jingle sessions used to start at sometimes eight in the morning.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So you'd be in there seven, setting up microphones, putting the chairs out. You, you knew what the line. You give them the lineup. You know, four brass, two strings, whatever, and you set it all out. The engineer and and then the rec- and then the um, advertising company would come in, and hopefully all the faders would work. the The, the thing was, it really had to work because a thirty second jingle, you didn't get long to balance it. It was like, bang, wallop, you know, throw the faders up, make sure everything's going to tape. Yeah, I suppose uh, a jingle's yeah. a very
0: concentrated piece of music, and It's, over, isn't it's it? over in seconds, so yeah. you, you don't have long to, yeah, to work at it. Exactly. Well, I've never heard of a jingle session before, uh, but it, it totally makes sense that you'd need to do that um, live I mean, it was and It's it
1: interesting, um, and voiceovers and stuff like that, you know, we'd had the, the guy who did all the film work, he was Canadian, and he used to come and go. Caffeine, and he had his voice down here, you know, on the Fourth of July. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I met uh, Ross McManus, who who, who, um, who sang a lot of jingles. He was um, Elvis Costello's dad. Hmm. And he was, like, the R. White's ads. I, did, I, I worked on those, R. White's Lemonade and stuff. Oh,
0: right, cool. Are you credited for those? No, in no, no, no. I was mostly an assistant on them. I
1: didn't really start to do engineering until I'd met Glyn.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, although, I no, I did engineer for David Bowie. Um, he he wanted, um, he, we were working on Diamond Dogs, I was just the assistant, but we really got on well. And he wanted um, Lulu to come in and do a vocal on Man Who Sold The World but he wanted to go clubbing so he said you can look after this John can't you I said, yeah yeah great yeah of course yeah never done, never done any engineering live engineering before in my life mm-hmm. I've, d- I've done mixing in you know because I used to drag up with the Eagles Masters and try and remix them on my own late at night you know that sort of thing excellent but anyway Lulu came in did that went to number one I thought oh it, you know <laughs> <laughs> So and then and um, the the Glenn John thing was very was very interesting because um he's he was known as a bit of a tyrant he would he's is very quick tempered you know short tempered uh sometimes although he never was with me and um he his usual assistant um suddenly phoned in ill one afternoon and the studio were, the girls at the studio were running around like headless chickens going what are we going to do what are we going to do and I said I'll do it and they said, yeah, but he, will you? And I said, yeah, yeah, I'd love to do it. I'd love to work with Glee. You know, so they went, OK, on your head be it. Off <laughs> you go. And, um, and we really hit it off. And he, he asked for me of all future sessions. And he started taking me to other studios. And we went to America together and worked. And uh, it was great. It was about four or five years together. And we did work with Eric Clapton and the Eagles and lots of stuff.
0: mentioned in an interview that he had he had a, a knowledge to know when the best take was coming.
1: Yeah, you could see how it. is
0: that possible? Like, where did that come from? What? You
1: just hear it all come together, and it's like when you work with an orchestra, it's, always, it's usually the third take that or the third run through is the take, because they'll run it down where they they're learning's parts, an orchestra, and then the second time they run it through, they're beginning to listen to what's going on around them. And then the third time they run it through, they they perform it, and they and they, the whole thing becomes sweet because they they they're tuning in with everyone and what's going on around them. Mm. And the same sort of thing does happen in the studio when you've got four or five guys playing together. Um, I mean, it can go on for hours. The, the Stones were just were hopeless. They they they'd start work at about midnight and. Try and get a take, and usually they go back and listen to the first one they did, and they go, "Oh yeah, well, you know, what on earth were we do- are we doing? You know, chasing their chasing our asses." Mm-hmm. But they go on all night, but which Glynn would never do. Glynn would only work to about midnight and stop. Generally, just said nothing. Nothing of any note is going to happen from this point, and mm-hmm. and it's something I t- I took on board and started to do with people, and and my engineer co-producer that I would worked with. Um, in later years used to say to me you, you know you, i think you stopped the session too soon i said yeah well he says i know what you mean you're not going to get any, anything done but the, it upsets the band you know because yeah. they think they're but they think they're about to get there but, right, yeah I, I maybe always thought, it... i always thought it was a waste of time
0: <laughs> perhaps in the mindset of the musician yeah they're Always getting better. Like every take is absolutely leading on a path to a better place. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I made perhaps the oversight that you have. You're able to say, "Let's call it a day." Let's call it a day.
1: <laughs> come in fresh. Definitely. Don't don't come in. You know, after a night of trying to get something, you're not going to get.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh well. And but so yeah, yeah. So Glyn and I had a great time together. And and he he, I uh, did let. Well, sometimes he wasn't even there. But he let me engineer stuff here here and there, so I, I got to got on the controls a bit and then 78 it was with Who Are You he walked out on that and the Who asked me to, as producer to finish it as producer
0: Hmm. yeah I mean there's a lot of stories about that album that I've read uh, uh, including it being the last one that they'd made with Keith Moon that's right yeah um, and him getting kicked out of the band during the recording and then coming back
1: Sort himself out, yeah.
0: Yeah. Um there's I also an interesting story about you uh, Glyn not being around one day and you mic'd up the drum kit with Oh that's before that's before Glenn came in. Was it, yeah. Yeah.
1: Before we started the actual start of the recording. I I, I, I came in and and with the Who's uh, drum, Roadie drum what they call them. Drum tech, tech I suppose. I <laughs> A drum tech. Who um, was very sweet, and we set we set up everything, and I mic'd everything. So I thought, Glynn always liked a uh, very very basic micing on, on kits. He liked the the air, he liked the thing to breathe. He didn't like close mic stuff at all. But I thought there's no way you can make this work unless you mic everything. So I I did kind of two micings on it, and I got it sounding really good with close mics, which and I left that up, and I thought, oh, well, let's have Glynn let's have Glynn listen to that. And then you've probably seen the story where Keith came in and just had a, he said, uh, what's it sound like? I said, uh, it sounds great, but you've not, I've not heard you play it so yet. said, right, okay. Went in, played for you know, a quarter of an hour, and adjusted a few things, it all sounded great. And he stood up and said, how's that? And I said, fine. And he, walked, and he just walked through the kit and sent every weapon <laughs> to <fly. laughs> I thought, oh, well, here we go. Yeah, all <laughs> of these. <laughs> start again. <laughs> yeah, perfectly
0: placed microphones that are all yeah. unbelievably expensive. Yep. To him, it's just stopping him do something.
1: And we had to take the, um, we had, we had, we had some syndromes on those sessions, we had to take them off in the end.
0: Dun, dun, dun,
1: you know, all that stuff.
0: Really? Like yeah. the electronic? Yeah, electronic yeah first one.
1: time we'd all heard them, but it was like driving us all mad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Glenn said, Find the dustbin and put them in.
0: <laughs> they are cool. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Limit limiting the syndrome is probably a good idea. You can't have, you It's could, not read really the who is it? No, no. But what was interesting listening to that album, "Who Are You," was um, obviously the strings in it are incredible. The strings sound absolutely amazing. My dad and yeah, yeah. yeah. That, so was that cool? Asking your dad to come and work on something that? Oh, a asked him. Yeah. I had it. Yeah.
1: Because he'd worked with Glynn before. He, um, he, we we did uh, the rough mix stuff with Pete and Ronnie Lane, Pete and Ronnie Lane, and my dad had come in and done a string arrangement called "Street in the City." And Glynn was completely blown away by this. It was just uh, it was a beautiful piece, mm-hmm. and uh, and he'd went on and did some more stuff with Pete, which came out on Pete's solo records, um, much later. But then he started to use my dad for the odd orchestra session, so when it came to putting strings, and this was quite early on, before obviously before Glyn left, he, we put strings on um, Love Is Coming Down and uh, had enough, wasn't it? Yeah,
0: mm-hmm. on, the, on that album. Yeah, they're really amazing
1: I'm, orchestration. And they were done in, in, the, in the big room at Olympic, because uh, Ramport was too dead to do strings, it's too small. Ramport's where we recorded most of the album. Mm-hmm. We went to Rack Studios for a week. We, we went. I don't think we kept anything from there. And then we, we Glynn mixed it once at um, Olympic, and then I mixed it, remixed it at CTS at Wembley um, because um, they wanted different mixes. Doing it, mm-hmm. they weren't too happy.
0: Right, and uh, what was also nice on that is the synths. There's a lot of synths. There's yeah. three or four tracks with some lush, lush synths. Was that was that Pete Townsend? That's Pete, yeah, he he he
1: he'd come in with demos with those all mostly on already. Um, he used the Yamaha CS80 a lot, the, the poly poly synth, The right? Van guys yeah. synth, yeah. And then um, John Entwistle had a um, a Moog, but it was polyphonic. It was the First polyphonic Moog I have come across. I mm-hmm. can't remember what it's called.
0: The Polymoog? I I think it so might you're... be the Polymoog, yeah. yeah, but great synth sounds, really lovely. Um, my ears, my ears just tune into synths whenever I hear them, and uh, yeah, it was.
1: I did a thesis on on synths in my last year of college. Did you? Yeah. Wow. And what I mean? met I met uh, um, Walter Carlos and um, and Mr. Moog. I met. He came over to London to demo his mini moog, and after the, the the demo, I I sat with him and we talked about. Where it was, it was going, and and uh, we'd already had the Walter Carlos um, recordings of the Bach stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Switched uh, on Bach. Yeah, which was I think was fantastic. I loved it. Mm. But it was uh, yeah, and and it's surprising how how much was being used then. I I had an ARP two thousand six hundred suitcase, which was lovely. And uh, and Pete, of course, who are you? Is that the guitar is put through the. uh, into the synth and it's doing, so it's filtering and it's um, panning. Really, yeah. the guitar. Yeah. Oh, cool. So, so it had an audio guitar. input. Yeah. On the synth. Oh, the synth,
0: amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think those synths opened up a different, a new sound, didn't they, for a lot of bands. Well, but the Beatles were using them,
1: but you know, use it like a French horn or something. You wouldn't be. Able to, sometimes you come and listen to it, and you think no, that's not a French horn, it's a synth. Uh, but but most people would just say, uh oh, that's a French horn. Yeah.
0: yeah, which is, it's quite interesting then maybe to go onto the Fairlight, because you picked up a Fairlight, which was a sort of a sampler synth, mm. um, wasn't it? What was, what was that like when you first came across that?
1: Um, the basic one was, was, um, was quite funny, I thought, which was a, like an eight-track sequencer with about a second of sampling, if, if that. And it had, and of course it had the orchestral stab on it, the sort of 8-bit, whack, you know, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> which it everyone was using. Oh. And, um, uh, and then I, I realised that, um, well, I played around with that and I used it on a few things, but really it was my dad's toy, he loved it. And he, he did lots of, uh, he, did, he did some pieces on it actually, which are really nice. And, and then MIDI came along, linked to it, which was like, oh, this is more interesting. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly they brought out this uh, the Mark Three which um I just fell in love with and um I built up the RAM so I had about I probably had more sampling than anybody else at the time, I had about fifteen, sixteen seconds of mm-hmm. of RAM sampling. So I c suddenly I could do loops of drums or singing or guitar riffs and on, on my first album. The guitar riff in, in the opening track is is a is a loop. It's it's a multi it's multi sampled, so I do, it's not the same each time it goes through. So that was quite fun to be able to do that sort of thing. And of course, I suddenly got booked for because I could fly in backing vocals from one chorus to another. And so I was getting booked to do that sort of thing because no, you couldn't do that. You can only do it with tape. Mm-hmm. And to do it with tape, it was like here it comes, bang, <laughs> all start again. That's a bit late.
0: That's like we've all done on listening to the radio, trying to tape the song that you want off the radio, wasn't it? Like, ah, oh, missed it. Missed it. it. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that sort of cut and paste. Uh, like in modern music, it's like that's like a keyboard shortcut to make the drum loop just go all the way through the track.
1: Yeah. Um, but yeah, but I, no, I was I was programming drums like a drummer. So that if if it was a high, if it was a tom hit, then there was a hole in the hi hat. So my drums became very very real. And I had lots of multi samples, stick drags. I had um, um, rim shots and bad rim shots, and so yeah. So it would sound like a drummer. In fact, um, I was talking to someone last night because um, they said, "Oh, you, I see you worked on the law, Paul, Paul Rodgers, and uh, oh yeah, it was Kenny Jones." But anyway, yes. Yeah, so I sat down with him and, and we sat and programmed everything together. Right, using, using his drums. Amazing. Yeah, that's good. It's what the producer wanted, Chris Kimsey, who, who produced the Stones and people at the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you spoke about the Fairlight changing uh, the way that you made music. Because studio time was off, could often be uh, not very productive in a full day, and it's cost you a thousand pounds to be in the studio. So the Fairlight um, enabled you. From what I've read, it enabled you to. Work on
1: stuff to map to map things out. Yeah, yeah. Certainly, when I worked with Cory Hart in Canada, we, we took the Fairlight and we went into the rehearsals and mapped everything out with. We used the OBX quite a lot. Funny enough, the, the uh, Obi, mm-hmm. and um, the the DMX. I mean, and um, yeah, yeah. I had everything linked up in the studio later as well, so we could put the Fairlight down, and use that as the. The building block that every, everything would be overdubbed to and, um, and it was quite nice in rehearsal because you can actually use you can use dynamics within a song rather than bang away as a song you go let's when it gets to the chorus let's all go quiet mm. everybody goes you're joking like, you know, trust me try it Yeah, we had a lot of success in North America with Corey Hart. He was never he was never known over here. but uh.
0: Yeah, but even I do know that song, like Sunglasses at Night, I think it had a resurgence maybe around 2005. Yeah, they used it for an effort, didn't they? Oh,
1: I did think. they? I think so, yeah.
0: I remember DJs playing a song with that vocal on it, yeah. so I always thought that that was the original. That was about... fun, because
1: he, he, he turned up on my doorstep here, funnily enough, Corey, and uh, he said, I want you to produce my next record. And I said, well, who are you? And he had little cassettes with him. So we sat down and, and I thought, oh, well, this is great, the cheek of the guy. And I could, I, I thought his <laughs> voice was great, and I, but I thought the songs were so average. And that's what I told the management. So they said, well, why, did, why don't you write a song with him and just try it out? So we did. So, yeah, it was Sunglass at night. And we went to Manchester, used all my guys in Manchester, where I work a lot. I used to work a lot. And... I drive Corey up and down the motorway, and he he said, "I've got the I've got the lyric. I've got the lyric, I've got the lyric. Do you speak American?" I said, "No, no, it's <laughs> not. No. Try again, Corey." <laughs> and after about three journeys, he went, "How about Sunglass at night?" I said, "Right, that's good." It so, is. A, so, yeah, so.
0: it's a great hook. That is. I think I've had that in my head for like the last week since I first re- relived that song. <laughs> it really does stay in your head, and it's. it's Have re- we ripped
1: off the rhythmics? It was Sweet Dreams, basically. Is it? Well, yeah. If you listen to the track, it's a, it's a rip off from, from Sweet right. Dreams, yeah, which was a big hit at the time.
0: It's a really enigmatic sort of lyric because there's, there's 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 definitely another side to it than the face value of just wearing your sunglasses at night. You know, it's yeah, it's really quite an yeah, interesting. It's good. It was, interesting uh, it
1: was good fun, and we went off and did. We made a couple of albums together. Then he decided he wanted to produce himself, and that was it. He died. <laughs> really? But at, at the time, I said to him, you've got to be very, very careful because you're, you, you, you're writing pop songs in Canada and North America and you're appealing to... Your age group is very small. It's, you know, um, it's mid-teens, basically. And they're going to move on and find other stuff to listen to. And the people that come up aren't going to want to listen to you because they were listened to by their big brothers and sisters. Mm. So you really got to think about the songs and develop repertoire somewhat, and uh, and that's when he wrote "Never Surrender," and we had a big hit in in America with that, which was great. But I, I knew he'd probably fizzle out because yeah, producing because he was a for young...
0: yourself is a different yeah. kettle of fish, isn't it? Yeah. I always think that the prodigy have done very well at. I think their core market really has always been like teens, late teens, yeah. And they've always tended to release things that are mainly aimed at that bracket. So as I've got older, I've sort of gone off their music a bit more. Even though I love, I love Liam Howlett as a producer. You know, he's phenomenal. But I think they have done that quite well. They've sort of subtly kept their core the same age. Yeah. You know. Oh
1: well, they also it's quite different. They're not poppy, I would say, in any way. Whereas as, Cory in his early days was pure pop, really. Mm. and it's you know listen to once and throw it away, isn't it? Yeah,
0: yeah. But your pop production is phenomenally good. Like that eighty sound that you that you created is it's such a perfect production. I don't know how. I don't know a better way of putting it than that. You know that era of 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 production. Um, because... Well, my
1: second album, uh, funnily enough. When I when I my second solo album that when I I went to Atlantic in New York to play it to everyone at the offices, and the A&R guys just said it's just too perfect, it's ridiculous, it's just. And then I found out that Pete Townsend had been using it for um, a studio reference disc, which is like. great accolade you know
0: yeah what like a reference a reference yeah because he
1: felt it so it was his perfect sounding record and uh, so he put stuff up against it and and go ah this is a bit boomy or this is a bit shrill or whatever Mm -hmm. Um, wow
0: did you ask him for that in writing did you ever get that in writing no (laughs) no.
1: i just heard that through someone else i I never asked him about it
0: that's amazing is that your album the complete angler is that the second one Yeah. yeah yeah
1: which has the perfect pop song
0: on it which is called the menu right <laughs> that's not one that's come that i've come no. across yeah your pop production is brilliant and um Thank so you. yeah what led you what led you to be in front of the camera and behind the mic from 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 being a, an engineer and a producer um i didn't i wasn't
1: looking for it at all funnily enough but um i just finished working with Marilyn Martin and we'd written a couple of songs together and she had a hit with um, Separate Lives, was a duet with Phil Collins, that I didn't produce but suddenly they wanted an album doing and they came to me. Mm-hmm. And actually they wanted it so quickly they worked with about four different producers. So I did three with her. And um, and Atlantic, Ar- Armit met Ertigan uh, just loved the production on the on the stuff that we did with Marilyn, atlantic in new york and they said um would you consider me ma- you know ma- making a record yourself you know and i kind of went oh, never even thought about that and my co- my manager was kind of kicking me under the desk. <laughs> i said you don't even know i can sing and they said can you sing i said well sort of
0: <laughs> it's brilliant you, you clearly like it really taking any opportunity that came along you know just yeah why not you know give it a go yeah, yeah. it's a really so i kind of took a
1: year off from producing and i wrote stuff and i had a um pete townsend's barge moored on the river here outside the house so i, I went in there with my fair lights and machines and samplers and i programmed everything up for the first album and we had a hit in america with um, a song called jane's getting serious mm. which is on it's on youtube yeah and that was fun. And I but I didn't want to tour, I didn't want to play, I didn't you know it was wasn't something I was really looking forward to doing, so I kind of ducked out. But they said they wanted another record, so I did a second one for I did make a third, which I, I think only got released in but not for Atlantic. I think it got released in Japan. Mm-hmm. But um
0: Yeah, I think there's there's an element of humor in your music. That that's you've something
1: very... you've got to be very careful with in America because musicians are a bit like actors they're taken very seriously the arts and if you're too flippant they kind of turn off you Mm -hmm. so you i think you've got to be very careful with that it might have been a mistake with me because in all my interviews were quite funny and you know that i was known as the king of quirk that's what atlantic called me really for a while you know (laughs) so i kind of went along with that and it was like sort of thomas dolby kind of thing going on you know
0: yeah I mean, even the album title uh, everyone loves it's the pilot a except the crew that's just that's just a really funny album title it's a great title and it's the true thing that I, no one's ever thought of before <laughs> actually yeah maybe the crew don't like the pilot yeah I think it's brilliant uh, maybe as Brit, maybe as British people we have a bit more of a connection to the, the self-deprecation or the humour of exactly
1: it. that yes we do and um and yeah, the arts are taken very much much more seriously, as I said here in America, where you're considered to be have to take it very seriously, mm,
0: yeah.
1: so yeah, flippant lyrics and tongue in cheek stuff doesn't go down too well really it's it's the It's the lack of irony, isn't it they have yeah. but um, colleges all loved it. it was funny because every every college in them was playing my record to death, really so students loved it, but um, it was the mainline radio people who kind of went, mm, is this serious or not? You know.
0: It was, that was, was it a bigger hit in America? It, oh yeah. 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 So yeah, you clearly did something. Yeah, you clearly did something right that didn't go over, overly funny or humorous. No. That, yeah. No. And I, mean, I got,
1: I got recognised for the first time in my life, which was a very odd thing. You know, going, checking to a hotel in New York and they go, oh, Mr. Esley. And it's like, <laughs> what's all this about? And, um, and MTV were fantastic because they made it a hit pick of the week so they played it every hour for a week on the air yeah. wow that's great Yeah, that's
0: really great I think it's a very rare you're a rare example of a producer who's crossed gone over. yeah who's crossed over to be uh, yeah had a solo career as well as doing the mastering um, normally you get you get a type of person who's a producer or like yeah. that, that doesn't want to be in front of the camera but it's great that you embrace that and you, you I think it all it.
1: helps, you know. The final thing as being a producer, if you're an artist for a short sure, while, well, a lot of a lot of artists become producers, for sure. Mm-hmm. But to go from producing to art to um, to being an artist is quite, is is a bit unusual, I suppose.
0: Definitely, the wrong way around. <laughs> Maybe you have more like empathy with working with artists then as a producer and mastering engineer. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know how they feel about the music to a certain extent.
1: Well, when I started mastering, which is probably in the nineties, I think I can't remember roughly. Um, Max Hole, who who was the head of Universal Records here, said to me, "Oh, you'll be good at this because you've got a very good bedside manner." <laughs> I said, "Oh, okay." And uh, of course, what what he meant was, you know, I, I can sit and talk to artists and that's that's because of the background and and partly from being an artist and and probably goes back to being a a tea boy and knowing how to top up eric clapton's drink you know as you do
0: yeah and yeah and well yeah david bowie the rolling stones the eagles yeah yeah incredible Yeah, you said you started mastering in about, in the mid-90s. I think so, right? yeah. yeah. Um, the, who came, the, who?
1: Well, the Who came to me and said, would I look after all their reissues? So I said, okay. So I went into Polydor, we had meetings. And I said, the problem I've got is a lot of the master tapes seem to be missing. I've since found them. Most of them were stuck in a, a library within a library in uh, <laughs> MCA in, uh, in Los Angeles. Wow. But um, what the Who had were all copies, so and sometimes second generation, you know, third generation copies. So I said it's okay remastering from these, but we'd actually get a much better and more interesting perspective if, if Polydor would let me remix it. And Polydor went, "Wow, that's a great idea!" Yeah. So we had most of the multi tracks. Some were missing. I think some, are, uh, some of Who's next. They were thrown to a skip when, when Virgin took over Olympic, they just threw all the tapes into a skip. Mm-hmm. As you do. <laughs> I dug out Isle of White eight-track tapes out of that skip when I went past one day. Jimmy Hen- Jimi Hendrix Isle of White tapes. Wow!
0: Yeah, incredible.
1: Which I subsequently gave back, Did but someone found half the Who's Who's next tapes in there, but the other half were missing. So that one, that will never be remixed. And, um, and a quick one. Kit, I think, burnt the Masters after they finished the album in some sort of celebration. Really? That's the story. I, I don't know if it's true or not.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's a bit like the KLF burning a million pounds, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> it probably seemed a good idea at the time. <laughs> it yeah. seemed like quite a, a renegade activity. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so, so, so yeah,
1: and and then I went to um, to master what the remix is with Bob Ludwig, who's been a lifelong friend. He um he's always mastered my productions. And um, when he was in New York, and he and then by this time he built his own place up in um, Maine. And so I went to visit him, and I took a couple of Who records that I'd, that I'd remixed, and we did those with all the bonus tracks and stuff, and. I said, "So what are you doing now? Like, what are you adding there, Bob?" And I was really, and he said, "Why, well, kind of like hang around for a bit if you want." So I did, and we went out for dinners and stuff, and um, and he, he, introduced, he introduced me to um, Daniel Weiss, who was a, a mad Swiss guy who builds mastering gear, and um, and Bob said, "Go, yeah, go home and do it now." So I went, "Okay," and I had a Sadie, which I use in the studio anyway which is a hard disc recorder. And I'd, I'd been using it just to compile albums on, really, and do editing on.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, so I sat in here and I, and I tried stuff out. And then I went to Metropolis and did it again, like the ABBA stuff. I try it here and then I try it in Metropolis with a, net, a mastering engineer and I listen to the differences. And and eventually I sort of got up the courage and, and, did, and started doing it properly. <laughs> Yeah, it takes a long time, I think, to understand what's going on digitally. It's a, it's a funny medium.
0: Absolutely, yeah. There's a lot of nuances and and details within the recordings and variables from one recording to the next. Sure. I remember reading about you having some difficulty with George Harrison recording that Phil Spector had done. Oh, well, the My Sweet Lord stuff. Yes. See, yeah.
1: Yeah. No, the the problem with it was that it, he came to me for remastering. I'm not sure why he didn't go to Abbey Road, but anyway, he came to me fine, and I did it once, and then I delivered it, to, I delivered a CD over to him, and uh, he phoned up and said it's, um, it's a little bit dull. I went, okay, no worries, I, I can sort that. So I did it again, just tweak the top end, a bit more air into it. He said, no, it's still dull, and I said, you sure? I said, he said, yeah, yeah, and. Um, did it again. And then, I, and then he phoned back after I did the third one and said, no, we like the first one. <laughs> so I said, come on, what's happened? And he said, oh, we had a, tweet, a tweeter blown or something. I think he needs uh, oh, really? yeah, in the studio.
0: really? Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's cool. Yeah. Sweet
1: it's... man, really sweet man. I, I miss him enormously.
0: Yeah, he was a great guy. Yeah. Yeah. There's some there's some stories where you've said it was a very simple process <clears throat> to master. For example, Catatonia, "Papers Is A Stone," but you, uh, it says you've did that in one day essentially.
1: Well, mastering usually takes a day for an album. Um, you sometimes go back to it a day or two later and just tweak here and there. Um, but generally, the bulk of it can, of an album is done in a day. Yeah, it's not a protracted. If it took any longer, there's something wrong with the mixes, basically.
0: Yeah. yeah, I was going to ask you about that. I mean, is there a point where you sometimes cross over to be a producer when someone delivers you something? Because oh, I've, you sent think... people,
1: I've sent people back. I've yeah. sent people home, yes. <laughs> <laughs> the tail between their legs. Um, there's a lovely story, actually. There's a girl, I can't remember her name. a girl, an unsigned, and she brought her little 17-year-old mixing guy with her, and um, and we sat and listened to it, and I said... Um, it. I really like this. I like the songs and everything, but it's not not very well recorded or mixed. So they kind of went, <gasps> so I said, what What do you mean? So I said, well, the, the, dynamically, the vocal's far too enormous compi- within the track. So you've got to learn how, how to use, uh, I'm afraid, to con- equipment to control the dynamics, compressors and limiters and stuff. Mm-hmm. And the little engineering boy is kind of listening to all this and I said, so. Gave him some list of plugins that he should try and and, uh, and told them about the track and what should be brought out and, and dynamically where they should go with it and um, and, stero- and and using stereo image a little bit better than they were. And they went home and I thought, and well, I didn't hear anything for a long time, I thought, oh, well, perhaps they gave up. Anyway, she, she called me up a year later and came in and they sorted it all out. It was, it was really nice that uh, everything seemed to be taken on board. It worked beautifully. But the, that does happen. It's very rare I'll send them home to, to do the whole thing again. <laughs> yeah. But now and again, you get a track and you go, ah, you know, this, this vocal, I can't control it. It's just too shrill through this middle eight or something. Mm-hmm. I had one recently and he uh, did a little remix for me. Because when you start, when you master something and you, and you, you make it big and loud and fat and happening, all those things become can become very obvious, you know. If something's too bright or too shrill, all that, all those mid ranges. I mean, what the Americans do when they master, they, t- they tend to just take all that middle out. Whereas English guys, English Muslim guys, don't do that.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, Why do you think that is?
1: Oh, it's just the way they work. I don't know. Maybe it's the way they they think everything is better because of it. Mm-hmm. It's a general, obviously, a big generalization. But I noticed that, because I've remastered a lot of American products. I've actually tons of it, like even Toto and People, which has been great. Um, mm.
0: They've had a bit of a resurgence very recently, haven't they? <laughs> There's
1: one little label that I, I do probably two or three albums a month for. And that's been going on since. You can imagine the amount of stuff I've done for them. It's enormous. And it's all American rock, and it's usually 80s.
0: 70s or 80s. Inspired. Yeah. Yeah. So then I know it's all reiss- reissued, Oh, it's reissued. Wow. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, you're the sound that you had in the 80, that, that the sound you created that it's like mass mastered it you've got exactly whatever r- was required or wanted or like mm. made at that time. Absolutely. Fantastic. Do you, do you approach, um, mastering differently? Uh, when you're given if you're doing stem masterings like track masterings I won't do that oh you don't do that no because
1: no. I'd end up spending all day remixing a track if I did that I see yeah. so I, I want to hear it how they want it how they imagine it finished mm-hmm. and um, and then I might say go back and make the drums louder or something but I'm, I'm not going to get into doing that it just takes it would take too long mm-hmm. and I'd lose I'd lose my perspective as well yeah. Myself. You know, like we talked about earlier where it's important the mastering engineer to hear something fresh, with fresh ears. And he can immediately go to where he feels um it might benefit or it might be slightly better for 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 um changing EQs or compressions or whatever. Mm-hmm.
0: your process let's say for example a project comes in what's your what's your process the work once you've received the the song files what do you do
1: i listen to it all flat the hop from start to finish always and actually a lot of people said no I don't know mastering engineers who do this because <laughs> <So> it's, <laughs> it's you know you sit down for an hour sometimes with um, before you even start work and it's and you get an, so you get an overall picture and make a few notes as it goes by, oh, that track two's a bit boomy or whatever, you know, those sort of things. And then if, if I've got an artist here, I'll talk to them about the way I see it, and they go, great. And then I tend, not always, but I tend to use analog uh, valves and analog EQ, uh, and valve EQ, and valve compression. And, um, and then I'll bring it back into digital to use multiband, digital um, compressors and tiny amounts of EQ very narrow band sort of stuff and um, and then record it back in alongside what they gave me and I can A and B it as I do it so I can hear the changes and what what's being done
0: yeah I, and I liked what you said about the decisions make a decision with perspective of perhaps a couple of days um, burn the track to a CD and live with it yeah, good.
1: it's nice to be able to. Um, i stick a CD in the car and go with it or whatever. But generally, I, I, in a, on a morning, I would come back, come back down in here, the, 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 within two days, maybe maybe wait for a weekend, and just listen through what I did. Mm-hmm. Generally, it's fine. It's funny enough. I just I did two tracks to a finished album this week and listening to what I'd done before, it's, just, it's a tiny bit boomy, it's a tiny bit, i mean, talking, and um, I've asked them if I could, uh, for them to check it, and see what they think, Yeah, so I might go back and do that, mm-hmm. all revisions I do for free, I don't, I, it's something that, you want to retain something together, which is as perfect as you can, um, and I just don't think you should be charging for that, you know, it's, it's something that, you know two or three you know if you don't get it right after two two revisions then there's something wrong mm-hmm. basically really wrong
0: definitely and yeah. um, what are those the Weiss pieces of equipment Device. there that you pointed out?
1: Um, this is a, a 7 band EQ unit um, you can get very very narrow with it and it's got also dynamic EQ in it um, mm-hmm. this I use for de but also I use it for a dynamic EQ so you can choo- choose a bandwidth if you've got a vocal that's really loud um, and a little bit piercing, you know, sort of around 1k, 2k or something, mm-hmm. then you can dynamically, you can just duck that around those frequencies whenever those come, they come in. So it won't affect the track at all. It just leaves the track alone, and it only d- dynamic will only affect stuff that is above a certain level. I see. So yeah, for vo- for vocals and de-essing and that sort of thing, this is great. For tiny amounts of EQ in very narrow fields, this is great. Mm-hmm. General EQ, I use. Um, gen. I I like to use the Manly and um, which is quite broad EQ. And, and this this is a three-band analog. It was built by the guy from Polar
0: Studios, who, who, mm. were, who, who used to work with Echo. Oh, it's an outboard multi-band couple. Yeah. Wow, that which is very fantastic. nice.
1: And this, um, I tend to use the control and bottom end more than anything. It's a, it's a manly compressor. Mm-hmm. Incredible. Which is very nice. Um, What's the what's the
0: what's that bo- control box that you have? This is this is my body control. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow.
1: But you can monitor. Um, you can listen to. Let's see what I've got here. You can listen to the phase. You can cut left and right. You can listen to surround. You can um, actually assign different units into um, into the chain so it's oh, got this that's a, that's a whole chain thing um, and this side is the monitoring so you've got a lift button as well when at the right at the end of a fade it, it goes to and the I'm already minus 38 but it goes to minus 6 when I or it can go even higher mm-hmm. when I um press the lift
0: button it's fantastic it looks it looks like it could it's like Geiger counter or something as well <laughs> <laughs> that's just
1: crispy I don't know. What, it's brilliant. I, I don't know what he was doing. Um, but you can listen to the extreme. So you're only listening to the extreme of the stereo. Everything in the middle has been cut out. Right. And so it's quite nice because you can hear. And then with M- MS, you can actually EQ just those extremes if you want, or ex- or just the middle if you want. So you can, You can actually start to change quite dramatically. Really it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Why would you do that? In what situation? In what situation would you remove the centre channel? Like, why would you go to? I wouldn't
1: remove it. It's just for listening to to the extremes and thinking. "Mm," You know, they're a bit bright as they are there. Maybe reduce, reduce, and then bring the because you can bring the echo down, of course. So you can actually start to change things that way as well. Because echo is stereo, but the voice, the voice isn't. Mm So you can make a vocal dryer by bringing the extremes down if you wanted to.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a brilliant way of working. I'd never thought about that. Because normally you do the centre channel extraction. If you want to take, if you want to rip a vocal out of a track, you extract the centre channel and you don't get the width stuff, but you may, you get them vocal down the middle. Um, but that's a great way of working. And I guess that's a really good way of making space in a track or adding. Yeah. Yeah. Atmosphere. It's, it's nice
1: to, it's nice to, if you've got something that's a little bit dull, um, but there's something quite bright in the middle like a snare drum or something you don't really want to to, you can just lift this, the top ends of the extremes of the track of the outsides of the track incredible yeah so yeah it's nice little tricks like that are, <laughs> are,
0: are quite good to do yeah and um, do you find you're able to listen to an album or a song and identify what the mastering engineer's done to that no
1: because you don't know what it was like before you got it. yeah so, that's a Definitely,
0: yeah. definitely not. No. <laughs> but do you? So, what for you would be like? Incredi- unless you've heard, unless
1: you've heard the tape, yeah, mm-hmm.
0: yeah. Because I know for me, like I pointed out, I spoke to a um i spoke to a producer called Aid Fenton who's produced Gary Newman's last four albums. All oh, right, and I, and he's about to release a new EP, and I said to him about the album, I was like, oh, it's brilliant because the. The space that you've created, the stereo image that you've you've made there, was brilliant, and he said that was nothing to do with me. That was the mastering engineer. <laughs> so I sort of felt bad. I I thought I, thought I was going to compliment his new album he's worked on, but the stereo imaging stuff was not done by the producer. It was done. by Well, the yes, you've got, you also
1: have widening tools as well, um, which are all digital. I'm afraid but there is. I think Neve make a, an analog one, which I've always meant to look at, but never. Mm-hmm. never really had a chance let me just um let me just open up this there we go this is um a bit of is an isotope plugin- oh, but yeah. you, um the the widener here is actually really very usable it's um i can't really demo it at the moment because i have got i've got it set up mm-hmm but yeah so you can do things like that and widen, widen stereo which in fact I, I did I did one recently where I felt the whole thing was a little bit mono and they came back to me and said don't use a widener so I went okay
0: Rule <laughs> <Pool> number one
1: <laughs> I mean, oh, I mean it's quite subtle I thought that. <laughs> but there you go yeah <laughs> I,
0: I think that's one thing that surprised me when I've looked at the phase analysis of a track say like the Chemical Brothers how thin it is until there's like splashes and effects that really widen it how how thin the the stereo images i yes. guess is that because it's just the way they work yeah, yeah it punches more like it's it, it probably
1: maybe yeah
0: One well, I can do that Be for you like examples of incredible mastering that you, that you that you admire, or perhaps mas- mastering engineers who you know that really were. Well, Bob Ludwig has always been
1: my go-to man. Who uh, well, Miles um, at Abbey Road, Miles at Abbey Road, is is pretty amazing, and very so particular because it, I, I think because his background he loves bi- working in vinyl. And you have to be so careful with vinyl you have to take your time set it up properly check a little bit do a little test you know and have a look at it under a microscope make sure the grooves aren't touching at all all that sort of thing and he and he takes his time and he care and everything else and that's why his stuff sounds so amazing
0: mm-hmm.
1: he's uh and all the equipment is he, he he bought a lathe from the old EMI at Hayes that was been sitting in a in a shed for years and it took them about 18 months to rebuild it to get the parts because no one makes layers anymore
0: yeah definitely Yeah,
1: and it's like press, it's like pressing machines you know uh, Optimal must have these old guys in coats with little oil cans keep <laughs> keeping these things going because they, they produce fantastic records they're booked up like six months ahead mm-hmm. you know, for pressing vinyl and no one's making pressing machines so you, they have to be looked after and rebuilt every now and again
0: Definitely, it's yeah. like seeing tape in the studio. Um, yeah, there's a lot of maintenance that goes into it, but um, I guess you know people like that are really into the sound, and they know the benefits of of cutting to tape or recording to tape. Recording to tape, it. I think it's, I think it's headed. It. Do you think?
1: <laughs> yeah, I think if you're careful, a lot of people kind of think, "Oh, Pro Tools, great, it's the answer." And they record everything a little bit too loud. Americans don't. Americans keep the headroom, but um, I get a lot of recordings that have been made where things have been peaking, not into zero, but, and so when they're mixed together, some of the some of the overtones, some of the like five K area, is going into is peaking and going to distortion,
0: mm-hmm.
1: even though it's not showing zero, because it, it's the overtones going into distortion, and. Um, and I think that's that's where you win with tape. You you avoid that sort of thing happening. But if you're very careful, I've heard I've heard sixty you know, forty-four one recordings on Pro Tools that I, I thought were from tape. I, I thought the uh, I thought they had been recorded on tape because mm-hmm. they've been so beautifully done. Yeah.
0: Oh, I see. Right, so um, yeah. if care
1: is taken. It can it can be perfect. Yeah, I mean. Listening to old stuff from tape is still great, obviously. It's funny, there's all these American f- little companies showing up now that will correct badly bad tape azimuth and stuff, and, uh, and uh, cut out biasing and all sorts of stuff. You know, it's like.
0: Yeah, there's some really high-tech stuff you can do now. There's even programmes where you can throw you can throw a whole a whole loop into a to a software programme and it'll take out the snare drum, the kick drum, the bass line. Yeah. Which yeah, it's really phenomenal. Extraordinary sort of what you can do. do. do you think I mean, how has mastering changed since you started? Has that changed much? Yeah, because I was
1: I started mastering, actually maybe I was I wondering I could do the other stuff. I wonder if it was eighties. No it can't have been it must be nineties. Mastering in Digital, when Metropolis set up, they, they pinched three guys from great studios in London who'd had spent their life mastering, to analog, mastering in analog, And they, they all came together, put their heads together and decided to build a studio for Mastering in Digital at Metropolis. And I was there with them, and they borrowed my Sadie and, they, and we, we tried some things out. Mm-hmm. A guy called Crispin there, who now works at Abbey Road was very instrumental um, in what they bought, how they used it, that sort of thing, and, um, and, and what what was going on digitally. So, in yeah, in the early days, you kind of thought, when CDs and digital came along, you kind of thought, well, why, what's the mastering about anymore? Because it used to be that whole beautiful thing of getting it onto vinyl. When CD came along, it was about just... Wasn't in a volume thing really. It was just balancing levels within a CD. So if track two came in a little bit quiet or a little bit dull or a little bit bright, then you know, those are the adjustments you make. And then the loudness thing came along, as you say, and we, we all started to make everything far too loud. And uh, and then since then we backed off a bit. It's really funny because I've just finished a, a five CD set of um, box set of the Who sell out for release next year, and the management, everyone got copies and listened to it, and everybody loves the sound of it and everything else. And the management came back and said, oh, it was a little bit quiet. And it's like, mm, yeah, but that's the beauty of being able to remaster these things is to let the dynamics be better, but always got someone's got a an opinion. Yeah. And it's difficult to hit that middle ground
0: yeah that's what i did want to ask you um surely like the label or the management surely they want it to be really loud sometimes to a degree Sometimes, but, maybe well, but when you remaster this
1: is there any point because you're trying to make something sound better yeah
0: yeah yeah that's true it's true i yeah i did i did want to know yeah wh- whether you felt like as a mastering engineer you're you're combating the loudness war because there must be external pressure for people to m- make it louder. For example, DJs or you know people playing tracks in a club.
1: I think I think the the main thing is that because the converters got better um, and all all the gears got better and you're now working at one nine two or ninety six k when you're doing the, the initial mastering before you bring it all down back down to forty four one horrible sixteen bit forty four You're um. Everything has got a lot, lot better. So that uh, that's the that's the reason for re- remastering for me. Not to make it louder, mm-hmm. just to make it clearer and nicer t- to listen to.
0: Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Well, I think you're a very brave man because you you've you've, master, you've remastered a lot of seminal records. Yeah. Uh For Abba, for Led Zeppelin, for The Who, for Rolling Stones. And, and I get slagged off. Exactly, you're a brave man because people, those original records are like, yeah. People will sort of remember their imperfections, don't they? Yeah. Um, but you're trying to make it as, as yeah, as as good as as good as it possibly can be. Yeah. So yeah, do you? Feel I, remember, I remember. I remember
1: the, all the ABBA Brigade getting onto my back because I did some de, de hissing, de-noising, on their stuff. Because uh, the, the, some of the mix reels were a little bit hissy, but I only ever used it on the on the fades. And when I did an interview about it, I said oh, I, I used a little bit of denoising here and there. It was like <gasps> all the Abba guy kind of went shit. This is terrible. Astley's used denoising all over the new Abba record. And <laughs> yeah. It really was like the last se- second of the fade. You know, <laughs> so you know it, that's the sort of thing that happens. It's, it's, it's bollocks. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I think. Um, yeah, maybe the best thing to do is remaster them and just don't say anything don't about say what's happening because then they can't pick up a, and and say, oh, it's multi-band compressed it. You know, that's
1: just not put my name on anything anymore. It's probably the best
0: thing. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I think you're a brave guy for doing that, and obviously, supremely talented to be doing what well, the, are the fe- essentially the biggest act in the world.
1: Yeah, and and the feedback from from the the the, 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 ba- the artists has always been very very positive always exactly so that's what you're, you're working for them and the label you're not working for they're the people that pay me I do a, a job for them it's they, a very good their point. job is to go out and sell it and keep everyone happy
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah um, yeah. just going back to what you remastered the other one was the Who Live in Leeds which you did and you removed the crackles from it <laughs> um, and there's a quote on the the CD, isn't there? Where it said, Crack, "Crackles are removed on purpose." Yes. Yeah, as, yeah, as... you did that on purpose because <laughs> the original one said something about the crackles. Crackles were, are meant. The crackles are intended. Yeah. Yes. yes. <laughs>
1: That's brilliant. Do you know how that happened, the crackles? Uh no. Oh, it's Leeds um, was very funny because they they built a little control room and with uh, one eight track machine, um, two floors below the. Um, the common room, the student union mm-hmm. common room, and I um, well, had all the cables going down to it. And there was a loose plug on stage, and this plug just kept shorting crackle, 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 really? bang, bang, crackle. crackle. <laughs> and, um, it, and it's only on every alternative track on the eight track, it's very odd. It's like on the, the kick drum, on the guitar, but the bass drum and the, and the stare and everything are fine. And it's, it's really very strange that, uh, it, that the way it came out. Removing it was a nightmare because there are declick software things and it's you just run it through that and it's fine, you kinda of go, oh that's better. And then you realise you've taken off the plectrum off the guitar.
0: Right, yeah.
1: So you yeah. have to go through and choose which bit of audio you're going to use and to paste it all up.
0: Do it selectively. Yeah. And yeah. the same the
1: same with all everything that you've de-clicked You have to be very careful. <laughs>
0: guess okay then. Let's talk about your um, the mastering service that you offer for unsigned artists. Un- unsigned artists, yeah. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic thing. So, yeah, can you describe how that started? Or? It started
1: when Sound On Sound came to me and said, "Would I, um, be offer a prize in a competition?" So I said, "Yeah, I can do that." So I said, "What's what's going to happen?" They said, "Well, we'll collect up people's home tapes and we'll send you the best ones that we, we think you know when they sent me hundreds, it was like mm. So I was in the back of the car going you know, It was like drive, the skip, to Memphis, like the
0: skip the, with the Rolling Stones reels. Yeah, yeah, except for the
1: back seat, you know. <laughs> oh, this is good. And um, and I picked three or four I think and so they became winners and they came and had a they all came together and had a day with me here. and I, and I did their tracks for them and explained what the mastering side was. And I thought, Well oh, this is a great big untapped market here, which um, people really do need help. They can't afford. You know, if you send something to Abbey Road or Metropolis, I think there's about £100 a track, and you may get a good engineer doing it. Generally, I think at Abbey Road you do, but um, you may get the T-boy the doing it. Mm-hmm. You, you never know. And it may not be what you want, and there's no comeback. So I thought, well, let's... Let's get them in here, or let's get them sent here, and start this whole thing. And I, I, I tend to do about one a week. I don't, I don't try and do too much of it, but because um, I'm a bit busy with other stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and but yeah, it, it's it's very very nice to do, and you find people. And now and again, I've placed people with record companies as well, which has been great. It's very um,
0: fulfilling. And so, how if there's someone listening who makes music and they want to send you their stuff? What sort of format do you require? In what sort of shape? I'll just
1: email, just email me, and then I'll talk to them and let them know. But yeah, it's it's a, it's stereo mix files basically. What I like, I work from. But um, if it's an album, they're very welcome to come and uh, and sit in and do it with me as well.
0: Oh, that's really good. Yeah, that's amazing. And yeah, so how how do you feel? Because I know I've personally used master... uh, Some people have mastered some of my tracks in the past. I've also used online mastering. Um, How do you feel about those sort of online services? I don't know. I've never
1: tried them. I don't
0: know. I don't know what they're like. Because I know for me as a punter, having used them, it felt like a very impersonal process. Yeah. uh, Using a company who, who just master it with a little bit of text. Um, it was so much more wholesome to have a guy that I knew who was working on it and I could just come in and go, make it sound more punk and then leave and then come back and know that it was a bit more edgy and it had a bit more rawness yeah, to it. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. I think, yeah, losing the human element in this sort of part of the process is it's not, sad, yeah. yeah, it's yeah. not a good, yeah. not, not really good. Yeah. If you don't, it's not a two way,
1: two way thing. Well certainly the word of mouth thing happens a lot with what I'm doing. I, in Ireland it's extraordinary. I think I've, I'm doing traditional Irish music, you know, every, every other week you know, and it's just word of mouth, you know, people, because they all, they all play together, they all know each other in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I'll oh, send it to John Hill. Really, yeah. I, really cool. I love traditional
0: Irish music and I
1: think it's a, it's a nice rest, a rest day. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: I remember seeing a band called Flogging Molly who played uh, they supported a band called The Hives, yeah. a Swedish band. Yeah. And I've never been so impressed with a live band like their sound. Great players. Yeah. Always great. fantastic. Players. So much energy. Yeah. Um, and I'm really from an electronic music background, so yeah, the energy that was on stage was just mind-blowing compared to compared to what I was used to. For for someone who wanted to try mastering uh, at home. At home. Um, what what would be your sort of tips for them? What to... for plugins? Yeah, do we just uh, just general advice on? Well,
1: me. Dan, Daniel Daniel Vice makes a thing called NEM One now, which is a, a really nice plugin, and it's got it's got presets in it which are are great, um, and you can control the amount of it's it's um, a compressor limiter, and you can control the amount of compression you want to use. Um, there's a, there's a, there's a punch button on it, and that, as you use more and more. Of it, mm-hmm. um, the drums don't get quieter. It's ext- <laughs> <laughs> it's extraordinary piece of gear. It just lets it through, you know. It's amazing. Um, so that's yeah, I'd, I'd recommend that to anybody if they want to master at home. Mm-hmm. Just bung it through that. It's like a lot of people were using the L three, uh, the Waves for for years and years when so it's just to bring their masters up to. Their uh, mixes up to a mastering level mm-hmm. but i I'd, I'd use and this has now kind of superseded it It's a nice piece of gear
0: yeah and do, do you think when someone submits uh their track to you to be mastered, should they have no effect on their master channel
1: um that's a, a, a depends a lot um, if it's something that they like the sound of that's affecting the whole track, then yes, by all means use it don't overdo it, that's, that's always what I say, if, it, if they want something, they can always send me both, mm-hmm. without the stereo bus and with the stereo bus, and then I can pick and choose which one to use, but if they, very often I'll get sent um, commercially um, something the engineer has done as a listening copy. Which people love,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so I can a and B what I'm going to master against that right. sometimes, which is quite quite useful, because um, it means that they he's got a volume that's they're happy with, so you don't have to go necessarily any louder than that, which is great, and it gives you an idea. Um, but usually they've just used it, like an M and one or an, an uh, waves, you know, L three or something, L two. Mm-hmm. I think the um, solid state logic compressor on on the stereo bus or limiter is very nice but it's just don't go mad with it you know if it's doing something yeah be just be careful when you a and b it yourself before you before you use it
0: mm-hmm.
1: if it's starting to affect the dynamics too much then don't use it anymore.
0: great okay thank you very much john thanks Later. for talking to me it's been great to speak to you wow what a career that guy's had uh he's worked with so many people there was a there was a shelf of cds in the room we were talking in which is all of the stuff he's mastered and um uh i it just it it knocked my socks off seeing so many artists that i know and love that he's worked for incredible incredible guy and do use his mastering service i uh i recently had a track done uh, by him And uh, it sounded amazing when he said it back to me. He is really a master of what he does. Right, next month we are talking about techy stuff. We're talking about synths, products, gear, from a guy who's worked for a very, very, very popular British uh, manufacturer, very big British manufacturer for a number of years. Uh, He also plays live, and we're going to talk to him next month, which will be probably 2019 now, so look out for that one soon. I'm Midyera. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you again soon.